1: Jeff Dyer's many books include the novel Jeff in Venice, Death in Varanasi, But Beautiful, about jazz, Uh, Yoga for People Who Can't Be Bothered to Do It, uh, Zona about Tarkovsky's film Stalker, um, Out of Sheer Rage on D.H. Lawrence. Those are just a handful of them. Uh, He is a fellow of the Royal Society of Literature and a member of the American Academy of Arts and Sciences. Uh, His books have won numerous prizes and have been translated into 24 languages. He is the writer in residence at USC. Um, Tosh Berman is a writer and publisher and editor for Tam Tam Books. His memoir, Tosh, Growing Up in Wallace Berman's World was recently published by City Lights Books. And Molly Lambert is a writer from and in Los Angeles. Please welcome Jeff, Tosh, and Molly. <laughs>
2: everybody. I feel like I've never sat behind a table before. I feel like we're at a press conference. (laughs) Um, Thanks so much everyone for coming out tonight um, for this event for I Used to Be Charming, the rest of Eve Babbitts. Um, I wrote the introduction for this book and I'm so proud to be affiliated with it and to have participated in it. Um, We're all huge fans of Eve's writing. And we were just going to read a little bit from the book um, and talk a little bit about Eve and her work. And um, yeah, that's it. And then maybe do some questions. Um, So I was going to read from my god, Eve, how can you live here? Um, When my sister and I were still rather short, before I turned 13 and refused to go on any more vacations, My parents used to insist on wild adventures during which two weeks out of an otherwise perfect summer would be devoted to mountainous roads, flat deserts, or even the Cries de folie when my father decided it would be a good idea to drive to Mexico City and back in our 48 Pontiac in 14 days. San Francisco, however, was a different story. My sister and I loved San Francisco, and we couldn't see the point of going anywhere else. We loved Golden Gate Park, the Cliff House, Fisherman's Wharf, and Knob Hill. We loved it. We'd save up our money to spend on Ravioli and Grant Street. It never occurred to either of us to wonder what kids who were raised in San Francisco would think if they had to go to L.A., but now it occurs to me all the time because half my friends live in San Francisco, and flying back and forth all the time as I do, I am under constant fire with such questions as, but how can you live in L.A.? My poor friends from San Francisco mostly get booked into hotels other than the Chateau Marmont or the Sunset Marquis. The Chateau Marmont and the Sunset Marquis are the only two places people from San Francisco are ever even marginally content, unless whoever's paying for the trip can afford suites at the Beverly Hills Hotel or the Beverly Wilshire. The Chateau Marmont, with its slow elevators, high ceilings, and amazing views, is a bastion of grace holding on by its fingernails against time. Sunset Marquis is pure LA, but like the Chateau, it doesn't have room service, and this seems to be what makes the difference. You cannot pick up the phone and get that deadly hotel food. But the Sunset Marquis has more than that. It has a kind of jolly ambience, like a summer camp for people involved in the industry. There are only three business constants in LA, aerospace, real estate, and the industry. Since most of my friends from San Francisco come down to LA to do business with the industry, they should tell whomever, whomever it is who's making their reservations to forget about the holiday inns or any other of those inns and that they'll take anything in the chateau even an eight by ten cell or that they want to stay at the sunset marquee i realize what happens to people from san francisco when they get off in the burbank airport and suddenly it's hot the buildings lie low and it's my god eve how can you live here the first time i returned to la after having moved to san francisco These moves are periodic notations in my life for the times I've decided to grow up and leave Hollywood. They last at most three months and then I am drawn back to LA irresistibly. Just for a day or so, I say to myself, and then suddenly I'm back. My moves to San Francisco seem to occur about once every seven years. People from San Francisco never come to LA for a vacation the way I'd fly up north just because it's so nice. People from San Francisco think LA is horrible enough just standing there like that without having to actually go voluntarily. (laughs) It's funny too, you know, because it's a snap to convert New Yorkers into giving up and loving Los Angeles. Italians take to Hollywood without a backward glance. Englishmen come practically armed with more knowledge about LA than even I know and plunk themselves right into the mainstream with odd remarks about the engineering miracles of the freeway, of all things. And the French, well, they can live anywhere. But my friends from San Francisco won't budge. Like an evil sister who's gone on the stage and enchanted the world, LA may be all right for everyone else, but San Francisco knows all about her and is not impressed. She simply won't do, ladylike San Francisco says. She won't do it all. And when it's unavoidable for business reasons that the northern sister make a trip to the grisly south, she holds her breath until she once more flies over the narrow escape of water that is the San Francisco airport. Meanwhile, people from L.A. think, wouldn't it be nice to go up and visit darling San Francisco? I know she won't mind. It's like that, I think, from what I've been able to see. And I wouldn't have noticed how little they can stand us up there if I hadn't become aware of the adverbial clause, to L.A., Looking at a horrible gold chain that you're supposed to wear around your waist, a person from San Francisco will say, to LA. A person from LA will say, my God, how horrible. It's so Las Vegas. (laughs) Rent a car, that's rule one. Let's say that you were from San Francisco and you had to come down to LA for a whole week on business, although you've tried everything to avoid it, but it turns out you have to, and that's all there is to it. The first thing to do, if you haven't done it already, is learn to drive. You will be abjectly miserable in LA if you're at the mercy of other people's cars. You must have your own unit. After you've learned to drive, all you have to do when you get to LA is rent a car and drive to your hotel, which is hopefully not the Continental Hyatt House or a Ramada Inn, unless you really want to immerse yourself in orange plastic. Once you have the keys and are in the airport parking lot ready to go, check your attitude. After all, it's your life. The ideas that you have about cities that you've always known don't work in LA. And once you toss those aside, you'll be much better off. Also, don't break any traffic laws in LA. The LAPD is incorruptible and humorless. (laughs) Forget about downtown museums, parks, and all the other things pointed to with pride in every town worth its salt, except LA. The fact that LA does have a downtown museums and parks has nothing to do with it, and everyone here knows it. I was downtown once four years ago to pay a ticket. It was awful. The museum, designed to look like a riverboat floating down the Nile with water and bridges all around, is no fun at all now that the water's been drained, and it never was much fun anyway, unless you've seen this gorgeous voyard they've got upstairs with the French Impressionists, or the L.A. Artists exhibit that's always there. Or if you like Verace's music and you go to a Monday evening concert where pieces that are too far out for anyone else to touch with a stick are performed regularly by L.A. musicians who are so adept at sight-reading from all the studio work they've done that they can pick up Alvin Berg and just play it. L.A. doesn't have anything as much fun as Golden Gate Park, but it does have Griffith Park, which is nice to wander in, especially by car, especially up to the observatory where James Dean tried to save Sal Mineo's life in rebel without a cause. There are two babbling brooks up there, one in Ferndale, which is a primeval heart's desire, just smothered in huge ferns, mossy stones, and wild strawberries. The other brook is in the bird sanctuary where the bird's first album cover picture was taken, which is across the street from the Greek theater. If you went to Vermont and Hollywood Boulevard, and loaded yourself up on Italian cheese, artichoke hearts, and salami from Delmonico's, and went next door to Samo's Pastry Shop and brought fresh Italian strawberry tarts, you could then drive straight up Vermont north and go sit down on the luscious green grass by the Greek theater and look at the trees. Or you could take the same stuff over to Barnsdall Park, which is just two blocks away, south of Hollywood Boulevard and about a block west of Vermont. There, you could look at more trees and grass and see some rather crumbling Frank Lloyd Wright buildings, which sometimes house sweet little exhibits of Maxfield Parish paintings or photography shows. However, if you're like most people, you, won't, you probably won't drive farther east than La Brea, and so won't know. Nobody knows about anything in LA except the people who already live here, and most of us never think of taking our out-of-town friends anywhere but those daffy fake places in the marina. Don't go to the marina. Whatever you do, don't even let your business associates take you there for Sunday brunch. You'll fall into a slough of despair which will be almost impossible to shake. Don't go to the marina even if you like stewardesses. They're all out of work now and aren't smiling. The marina is of doubtful interest. These fantastic and troubled new apartment buildings keep incessantly going up, and the stewardesses who move out of one and into another newer one when it gets dirty, which usually takes six months, share the unbelievable rents so they can get tan and ride their bicycles along the bicycle paths in hopes of meeting their male equivalent or someone interesting. If you really wanted to see a bunch of stewardesses, you'd already be living in LA, or you'd live in Sausalito and think the Trident is just wonderful. I'm not writing this piece for people who like the Trident. But suppose you'd like to see something grandiose and flashy, something that lives up to your every expectation of Hollywood and Southern California that you've ever, in your weaker moments, owned up to. Then you should take your car out of the parking lot of the Chateau Marmont or the Sunset Marquis and point it west on Sunset and drive to the Beverly Hills Hotel. Like all truly great hotels on earth, The Beverly Hills is an unflinching masterpiece better than any museum, shopping center, or the Paris Opera House. There is nothing going on at the Beverly Hills other than a constant battle to maintain perfection. It's better than Charch because there are no groups of tourists moving from place to place under the supervision of a knowledgeable guide. You can wander around instead at your own pace, and no one has to tell you what to look for. Everyone knows that the Beverly Hills Hotel is the best hotel in the world and not just because it's so beautiful on the outside, but also because they have the best beds and the most flamboyantly efficient telephone system left in civilization. When you pick up your phone in the Beverly Hills Hotel, having arrived eight seconds before, the woman says, hello, Miss Babbitts. She knows. They also take down your phone messages in triplicate, leaving one in the lobby, one under your door, and one for their records in case the other two get lost. The best thing to do is to park your car along Crescent, just north of Sunset Boulevard, and then walk over to the back of the hotel, where an insanely luscious garden is always in bloom. Around what they call bungalows, which are little pink houses you can rent for about a thousand dollars a second, orange trees and jasmine, bougainvillea and palms. Everything along the pathways is tended perpetually by three gardeners per square yard. There are never any dead leaves. Nothing ever dies at the Beverly Hills Hotel, it's not allowed to. After strolling around the winding maze in which you can easily become lost and even lose sight of the main hotel, although it is four stories high, you could gild the lily by going to the polo lounge either for a light lunch. They don't believe anyone should eat more than three shrimp despite what they charge you, or a drink. And you could watch movie people. Watching movie people is child's play in the polo lounge because they are the only people in there besides you. In the lobby, you might run into James Baldwin or Dr. Joyce Brothers, or both at once, like I did long ago. (laughs) But they don't usually go into the polo lounge unless it's with a producer. A good thing to do is to ask someone to meet you in the lobby of the Beverly Hills Hotel so you can go to the polo lounge for a drink. Then you should arrive about 20 minutes early so you can just sit and watch. You will see people you never thought existed pad softly across the carpeted floor, Silent testimony to the fact that Los Angeles is, after all, the center of the universe as far as the industry is concerned. If you're a woman and wanna go to the polo lounge for a drink alone at the bar, they won't let you. Vestigial amenities, I suppose. There is no women's lib at the Beverly Hills Hotel. Even if you're going to be a hooker, you have to sit at a table. Los Angeles is a city of amazing streets, streets that go on for miles and miles through slums, which in New York would be unattainable delights, fancy business sections, car lots, and palatial mansions. Wilshire Boulevard, an ox and cart road up until about 50 years ago, is a great street to drive to the beach if one has the time, although Sunset Boulevard is even prettier. Los Angeles is a strange city as far as the ocean is concerned because no other city so close to the sea has ever started inland and branched out later to the beach. San Francisco, like Genoa, Venice, Boston, New York, Tangier, Palermo, Athens, Honolulu, Amsterdam, and New Orleans, is based on the premise of harbors for ships. Los Angeles is the only giant-sized city by an ocean that got got around to harbors after the place was already established. Um, I'm going to stop there just because uh <laughs> so uh, so yeah that's just a, a taste of a, a great example of Eve's writing uh, particularly about Los Angeles um, Tosh do you want to read from your book or do uh, you don't have to my
1: book, my. oh my Tosh book yeah I, luckily, I memorized the entire thing. <laughs> <laughs> uh, no. All right. <laughs> I, I, I want to focus
2: on Eve. Sure, yeah. Eve. Could and you talk a little bit about your father and, and uh, yeah. how your parents knew each other? Oh, you got to read
1: the book. <laughs> 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 um, my father uh, was an artist named Wallace Berman, and he was the first artist... are we talking to the microphone? Oh, yes, of course. Hello. Uh, he was the, um, one of the first artists to have a solo show or a show at the Ferris Gallery in uh, 1957. And uh, the Ferris Gallery was started by Ed Kienholz and, um, and Walter Hopps. And it's a very prominent, sort of famous gallery now, looking back, because um, um, especially when, when Walter Hopps and Ed Kienholz had it, it was pretty much like an artist-run gallery. And they didn't know what they were doing exactly. So they chose my father, who uh, <laughs> was fortunate to be, um, to be the first show. Uh, unfortunately, um, the police came by and uh, closed the show down and arrested my father. And a lot of the artwork was, went missing. Um, supposedly, rumor has it that Walter Hopps had <laughs> numerous pieces by my father. And Walter is known to be a... Um, admire of uh, collecting art, but sometimes you didn't pay for pay for it. <laughs> and but yet, you know, let bygones be bygones because Walter was a very close friend of my parents. And um, um, I remember as a child, my dad and mom would take me to a lot of gallery openings, and um, including the Ferris Gallery. And um, uh, the Ferris Gallery is also famous for having the first uh, Andy Warhol solo show in Los Angeles. I don't think he had a solo show in New York. At the time. Yeah. So um, so that's another, and that's when Irving Blum was the director of the Ferris Gallery. And um, Eve, going back to Eve, Eve was always a presence in my life by going to these galleries and Barney's Beanery, which was a bar on Santa Monica Boulevard in West Hollywood. <coughs> and it was, a, it was an artist hangout place, and uh, Eve would, would always be there. And I was here at openings, and I did not know her very well, but I was always, I knew who she was. And uh, because of her presence, I knew she had um, a very um, social life, I don't know how else to put it, among artists. And um, and I picked that as a child and a teenager, I picked up that she had a strong relationship with artists, as well as bands like Buffalo Springfield, which she did the album cover, and um, had the second Buffalo Springfield album. So Eve was very much a... Um, strong you couldn't avoid her, she was such a, she is part of the Los Angeles landscape and what makes her really fascinating there was other people of that of, of that time and place uh, women, including Tony Basil, who strikes me as um, not like Eve, but somebody who was always in the right place, right time, knew everybody, and just a remarkable person like Eve eve is and um, what I find fascinating about um, I, the only time I had a, a a face-to-face conversation with Eve, I think it was at the Grinstein uh, house. The Grinsteins were art collectors and they were great art collectors and great people. And it was at one of their parties and I can't remember if I was there before my father died or after. But I was a teenager, maybe like 20 years old. And I talked to Eve, she, she actually approached me. And she was, it was very interesting because she was trying to figure out who I am, why I'm there. And they say, you're like, well, you're like Wally Berman's kid, right? And I said, yes, yes. And she said, okay. And then she thinks, she's still like, I could see her mind working, like, why am I here? Who am I? Mm-hmm. And then I thought there might be some type of sexual flirtation <laughs> from her. She were, only like, we're only like 12 years apart, or, you know, at time, so yeah. I, I didn't know what to do. So she just sort of like studied me for a while, and then she lost interest. <laughs> <laughs> and she walked away. And I was not hurt by this. I was not, um, I was not charmed, but... <laughs> I thought that was an interesting, you know, interesting interaction. I never had talked to an older woman before it? It <laughs> 18 or 19, and because I thought there was something sort of sex, there was a sexual overtone. and um, I thought that was remarkable. <laughs> Many years later, <laughs> I started reading Eve Eve's uh, books. Um, I read uh, *Hollywood Eve*. Is it Eve Hol- *Hollywood Eve*? E- Eve's Owen. *Hollywood*. Excuse me. Yeah. Uh, that was the first book of hers I read. I really liked it. But to be honest, I used to be charming. Is my favorite Eve book because it deals with my history, uh, my social history of sense, especially when she writes about the Ferris Gallery and um, the Doors about Jim Morrison, and her 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 chapter or article on Walter Hopps and the Marcel Duchamp opening, uh, which I went to as a child. That was dumb. I was like eight or nine years old when I went to see and I met Deschamps. Um, I did not play chess with Deschamps, nor did I take my clothes off, but, but even a child, that was such a famous, iconic picture. And uh, Julian Weiser, who took the photograph, um, was a, another well-known Los Angeles citizen who took photographs of numerous celebrities, but also he would go to nightclubs, document nightclubs, um, And during the punk years, which I was totally involved in, he went to a lot of punk clubs and photographed the scenes there. So um, Eve's world is totally separate from me because we were sort of twelve years apart, and she was into like music that I was not into, which is like um, sort of the Laurel Canyon sound, which I hated. Mm. (coughs) I still do. (laughs) But I admire her because her appreciation, and she's very much part of that world. And her, her writing about my father, not my, my father, but about the Ferris Gallery and Walter is, I think, very, very precise. I think, very, I think she's totally correct in everything. And she has a good eye, a good uh, awareness, and she is very charming. And her writing style is, um, um, I, you know, I just finished reading Swan's Way by Marcel Proust. And um, she's a better writer than Marcel Proust. I made that up.
0: <laughs>
1: oh. I need a dramatic gesture. <laughs> once <more. laughs> but, but nevertheless, she strikes me as a person who, docu- who documents and sees people in a social setting in a very accurate way, in a very wise and a very smart, and she's a really good writer. And I really admire her for her, her, her approach to her subject matter, documenting the scene, being very honest because she has relationships with these people. And um, it's never... it's it's. It's kind of gossipy, but not like hardcore gossip. It's very respectful in a way. Uh, yet, there's a sort of dangerous element when you read, you think that you're, you're, you're gonna pick up something kind of bad. My dad has mentioned the book, and um, it got me worried for a second. <laughs> <laughs> so I don't know about my father's relationship with her, but he definitely knew her quite, not, actually not quite well, but he knew her because he knew all the other artists, and he was very much part of that social world and that social scene.
2: Yeah, I was going to say, uh, Eve's Buffalo Springfield cover and some of her other graphic design work was collage, a lot of collage uh, and kind of assemblage awesome type stuff like your father mm-hmm. was known for. Um, I was just wondering, yeah, if you guys had any general thoughts about sort of the climate of the L.A. art scene that allows for sort of these weird things to happen that feel like they can't happen other places.
1: Um, well, I'm sorry. Yeah, Los Angeles to me is a very unique place at that time because there's a hardcore art scene happening with uh, the Ferris Gallery, and there were a lot of galleries. Yet, n- in New York at the time, in the 60s, New York was very centered in mind. So a couple times i visit, like, New York, it was always kind of surprising because they sort of thought of Los Angeles as sort of like a frontier town, and they really didn't take it seriously. Special writers from, um, mostly writers, critics, from <laughs> art form at the time, which is ironic because art Form start above Ferris Gallery. But, but it's... Uh, but it's it, but it, Los Angeles never looked at itself. It never took itself seriously. It never like, documented its history like it does in New York. New York has a very strong sense of culture and history and society. In Los Angeles, you don't have that, 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 that class system or, or, the, or that society, at least visually, or, or at least the way I was raised.
2: Yeah, well, how about you, Jeff? Oh yeah,
3: so um, uh, of course I had uh, <laughs> no personal relations, acquaintance or anything with anyone in, in the scene or in the book. So I encountered Eve Babbitt entirely as a writer. Obviously, I, was, I knew there was this picture of a nude woman and uh, Duchamp playing chess, but I had no idea who, who the woman was. So actually, although I... I mean, I'll go on. One thing I would like to ask you to I think it might be of interest to everyone. I mean, I'd never heard of her. So the question is this. How completely forgotten was she... Before the Vanity Fair Stroke uh, N Y R B revival, I think that would be well. That would be of great interest uh, to <coughs> me.
2: Yeah, I mean, I uh, I actually had not read Eve because she was mostly out of print um, until a friend of mine, uh, a New York writer <laughs> named Emily Gould, started a um, like a ebook imprint label um, that was mostly dedicated to republishing out of print female authors. Um, and one of the first people they published uh, was Eve. And she said to me specifically, oh, I think you would you know, love this writer. She's like the greatest L.A. writer. You have so much, you know, you guys have s- stuff in common. Um, and then when I did read Eve for the first time, I, you know, I went to used bookstores and sought it out uh, and found some out-of-print ones. Uh, I was glad I hadn't read it earlier because I would have just given up on writing. I would have been like... <laughs> oh, here's this person who said all the things that I want to say always when people say L.A. is like a place without culture or a place for idiots or, you know, the things that people say that don't know what they're talking about. Um, And she says it so well in the way she talks about how so many of the things about L.A. are these things written by outsiders, you know, or written by transplants that are treated as sort of a metaphor almost. Like L.A. is this place that represents everything bad in the world. You know, and those of us who live here, and especially who grew up here, um, as I did, I think we know it's also, you know, very much just a place um, that is a, a regular place with its own, with you know, a working class, and not everybody's in the film industry. Um, and we have a lot of great cultural scenes that are not maybe as as uh, overblown or self-mythologized as scenes are other places because we have, by default, we have to have sort of a sense of humor about it here. Um, but yeah, I also think Eve was, the, re- the reason I think she's gotten so much traction, especially right now, is because she's so sort of proto-internet writing to me. Um, her writing is so stream of consciousness-y feeling, but very well crafted, you know, to make it feel like it's spontaneous, but it's obviously very well thought out, which is so hard to do. Um, and you know, when, when I and a lot of other people, a lot of other young women writers especially, were starting to write on the internet, you know, we were thinking like, oh, here's this new frontier that we can treat sort of like new journalism or something and just write about, write in a way that wouldn't be published in a print magazine probably at this point. Um, And I think now we're sort of getting to a point where maybe the internet isn't as much of a place for that anymore. So maybe some of those people are going back into print. Um, I've mentioned Gia Tolentino's book, Trick Mirror, which is a book of essays about the internet and... uh, femininity and and stuff that I really feel like is sort of, she's another writer who came out of the internet who I feel like has just a very strong voice and is very much herself and, you know, is speaking from a first person point of view. Uh, So yeah, I think Eve's sort of ability to speak, speak through time and feel so modern is what makes her, you know, sort of impossible to forget.
3: But, but, um, so, but the question was, what, I mean, I'm mean, i wondering how completely was she forgotten, or did she uh, live on as a sort of local uh, legend, if you like?
1: I think, well, I, I knew her as a writer for, forever, and I, I, I see her as more as a cult figure. Mm-hmm. Like the people in the know and the know would know her work. And she was not obscure in my mind, but in the, probably in the general framework of, the literary world, yes, but um, yeah, she, she struck me as, you know, her books did become out of print, but not difficult to find if you go to a used bookstore, especially on the internet, finding her work. And she has a colorful history. I mean, like her, you know, her godfather, Stravinsky, that's kind of amazing to me. And her father, I mean, her, Stravinsky was her godfather, excuse me. And her father was a violinist, and um, um, so she has this really, really deep cultural background.
3: Yeah, but lots of, I mean, having a a famous father doesn't count for anything, does it? Yes, it does. (laughs) Well, I mean, uh, I can see it uh, it helps, but it it doesn't constitute an achievement in itself. (laughs) It really doesn't. Uh, It's her talent, the way she lived. I mean,
1: a lot of it is doing, I think, because of her personality, her life, and therefore people pick up on her writing, and the fact that she's... um, looked at the Los Angeles landscape in a very sort of sexual manner. Um, and very much was sort of the sixties feeling, including the, the music scene as it was happening. I think if you're interested in the doors or interested in Buffalo Springfield, the name Eve that will come up in your research somewhere down the line. You're gonna go, who is this Eve? You know, why how does she know Ed Shea and, and and Jim Morrison and Marcel Deschamps? How that you know, how does that work? Yeah,
2: she's it's interesting that she sort of did bridge a, a bunch of different Countercultural eras in Los Angeles, where she was like Zelig, just sort of there, there for everything seemingly, but also taking notes, going to these parties, but you know, not not just socializing, clearly sort of thinking about everything and and turning it into writing.
1: I, and I don't know if her friends took her seriously as a writer or not. I don't know if they. I don't know if she had that type of relationship with her. Fellow. Well, I guess
3: that that's an interesting thing mm-hmm. because I mean, there's. Uh, uh, You know, I think the the problem with her status as a writer, we can reduce it to just two words: party girl. And the first word, party. I remember during the fatwa against Salman Rushdie in England, there was a slight resentment that he was using up all of this sort of uh, all of our tax pounds on police protection when people sort of held it against him that he liked going to parties a lot as though that meant... I mean, it's o- it's always been okay for male writers to drink a lot, but the drinking of Hemingway and Kerouac, that was seen as some sort of direct expression of the intolerable burden of their vocation. But partying, okay, so partying is a bit suspect anyway. And then the other thing, girl, you know, she's a, 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 a woman <coughs> writer. And I think one of the great charms of her one of the great pleasures of her writing Molly and I think it's so good what your your first line in the introduction when you said geez what fun it is to read uh to read Eve Babbitt it's a lot of fun and then I guess you know when you start you contrast her with you know two other two other writers I mean Susan Sontag of course who uh um let's say took herself incredibly seriously but more than that also elevated seriousness to this great height where the idea of i mean there's just no humor at all in uh, in in sontag's book books and then the other person of course joan didion who's often seen as the kind of uh, some sort of voice of, of, of california but in many ways she's a very inappropriate voice because that key component of Southern Californian life, which William Finnegan sums up so well in what he says is the oxymoron of being aggressively relaxed. <laughs> you know, that clenched <laughs> brittleness that you get in, um, I- in Joan Didion uh, is, is sort of, it's weirdly inappropriate. Then we come to uh, Eve Babbitt's, and when I read her, there was this instant thing of thinking, oh my God, that the Eve Babbitt style is so appropriate for this part of the world. But part of the reason it's such a delight to read, uh, so easy to read, is precisely because she doesn't take herself seriously. In fact, is all the time uh, sort of doing herself down. And unfortunately, I fear, I fear that really, uh, it does. Even though it's a really, it's an essential human quality, to actually not not be taking yourself serious as a writer means that other people don't and this is for me I mean uh, I first of all read Eve's Hollywood and I quite liked it Uh, and it was but there was a kind of clumsiness in it and I thought that was the major book but then uh, my friend Matthew Spector who introduced this book he said you know this is the the Eve Babbitt's masterpiece and perhaps at some point we can talk more about what we think are the, you know, the really great Eve Babbitt's book. I mean, books. For me, it was this one, and this is the one where it seems to me there was just that perfect balance between profundity and lightness. Uh, it's really, it's a seriously funny book, and there's a the key line in it for me where it's the in that great story. Or actually, this is something else we could discuss. Uh, the piece, Bad Day at Balm, Palm Springs. I mean, is it a story? I mean, what, you know, what is she writing? She's a, very, um, she's a very contemporary writer in that when you're reading her, you're never quite sure what, you know, what what is this. Is it an essay? Is it a story or what? And there's this moment here after this. I mean, this is one of her funniest pieces. And she says, Janet and Sean, too, were nice, but I thought that of all the days in my life that were rotten this one in palm springs was probably going to be the worst in a frivolous kind of way of course and that is the that seems to me in a nutshell that is the eve babbitt thing that she's so c- conscious that it's of course ludicrous leading this privileged uh, carefree life of hers to say she's had a terrible time and she's so knowing like that and always as well this is the other thing that I'll say quickly before and, uh, handing on, I mean, she's such a great writer of gags, uh, and increasingly, I mean, I feel I don't want to read any writers who are not funny, and it <laughs> seems to me that she is, she is screamingly funny, and she's so mastered that thing of the kind of cumulative punchline. I, you read a, you know, you read a couple of sentences, you get to the punchline, it's really funny, but then there's another punchline on top of that, or even better, there's a line which kind of undermines the gag and the bottom drops out of it into some sort of fathomless uh, um, despair. But uh, anyway, <laughs> so uh, it's that, yeah, it's just uh, it's that, that lightness of touch is so, so, dif- so important, but I feel it's been a bit of an obstacle to her being taken seriously. Well, I feel
2: like also what you were saying about that sort of, hard, the difficulty of classifying it as one genre mm. or another, which, again, to me feels very L.A., to sort of operate in these spaces between forms and be like... It's its own thing. It doesn't have to be one specific. You know, it doesn't have to be just an essay or just a fiction story. It can be both of those things. Uh, and just the form of the book is a collection of essays. It all feels very contemporary. Uh, this one you mean? Yeah, I mean, all of the books uh, and Slow Days, Fast Company, which is formulated as sort of like a like almost like an album. You know, where it's like a series of essays that. It's like songs in a in a track listing that you know build on each other and come back to each other and add up to this thing that's sort of you know elliptical in a way. Um, yeah, do you guys have favorite essays from this book or or any of the books? Oh yeah,
3: loads. Yeah, uh, I mean uh, Tosh mentioned the, uh, the the Jim Morrison uh, one, which is of course uh, it's great. Partly because of course we love hearing about J- uh, Jim Morrison, but I remember. Uh, reading it and just that kind of thing where she talks about first of all the way that you know we think of him after he got all boozy as being as being a bit fat but she's you know right from the start you know she says oh he's just really pudgy and also then the way that she just dismisses the the, the poetry as hogwash it's <laughs> I mean, just such such genius
2: right because it's it's lovingly written it's, it's uh, you know I think she's written a lot of the greatest profiles of of yeah, rock stars yeah. of that era especially and they're all written in this way where she's sort of you know she understands what's seductive about them but she's also like they're very silly for the most part mm-hmm. you know Graham there's one about Graham Parsons that's also you know here he is this very like aristocratic person but you know who writes these beautiful songs and And a lot of her stories about the people she knows will have these very sad endings at the end where she'll say, oh, and then this person kind of, you know, fell off track and the last Mm -hmm. I heard from them, they were a junkie and, you know, but she'll remember them as sort of like, this is when I knew them and they were this beautiful, shining star. Um, Mm -hmm. There's the essay in Eve's Hollywood about the girls she went to high school with, you know, all the beautiful Mm -hmm. girls who, who are not celebrities, but she just talks about, you know, here were the most beautiful girls in my high school who were all... So insanely beautiful that they all could have been movie stars, but you know, here's what happened to all of them. I love that yeah. essay, um, and I think I think sexism is is a big reason that she did fall out of print in you know in the first place. Because I do think you know, especially somebody who was looking for sort of counterculture female writers uh, to to want to model myself after, I was always wished there was somebody like Eve who was like a, a female gonzo writer, you know, who really experienced yeah. everything and, and who was so sort of lusty in a way that, like you were saying, Joan Didion is very, is very frontier-like in a way in that she's like the, the Puritan observer, sort of, mm-hmm. of all the... Um, but that makes sense because she's from Sacramento, which is, <laughs> which is sort of a buttoned-up place. Since, you know, it's more of a... And I do think there is a difference in sort of the Northern California and Southern California... Styles, although I think it's become a little bit less because now Northern California is not very cool anymore because of Silicon Valley taking it over. It's a, it's
1: a tragedy. Yeah, so
2: I'm glad I'm glad people are now recognizing uh, that LA has culture. Um, although obviously those of us who've been here all along are like about time. <laughs> um,
3: I mean, yeah, and it's uh, I, I like these trips that she does to San Francisco, and it's these. Sort of off the cuff moments of brilliance that I enjoy so much. He goes to hear Allen Ginsberg, read Howell. You know, it's outrageous. Uh, and she says, the thing that really shocked her, she says, is that a man of that age could be wearing sandals. <laughs> 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 um, so it is really. I mean, there's just so. I mean, we don't. We could spend ages just reading out our favourite bits. But yeah, there's just a ton of uh, a ton of stuff uh, uh, like that. Yeah. she's, a, she's
1: an exceptional. Great travel writer. Yes. Yes. Oh, yes. She's yeah. She's really good. I mean, just you know, you, you could picture anywhere she's at. And, you could, and I love I love the chapter about her going to New York to meet yeah. um, the of people.
2: The one about the Godfather yeah. is one of my favorites for sure. Yeah, yeah. Also because I feel like that's something that could never get written today, because um, they would never let you say anything vaguely mean about a director of a big movie that's coming out in a profile. But I love that she says, "I'm an insider. They let me come because I knew everybody." They're letting me write this because I know everybody, so I'm gonna be honest about it. Um, and again, it's written very lovingly. You know, Everybody comes off sort of good in the end. It, and it's good because it exposes the idea that all these great masterpieces were just made, uh, that everything flowed perfectly and went according to plan. It's like, no, this guy mm. wandered off in the middle because he was got drunk. And she explains how a New York actor stuck all day on a soundstage might get bored waiting for people to film and wander Mm -hmm. off and get drunk. She says, totally understandable.
3: It's very, yeah, it's very clever. It's so funny. I mean, there's this great bit at the beginning when she talks, uh, says, all the women in New York have posters of Robert Redford on their walls. If they came to Los Angeles, they'd find Redford parking their cars and saving their lives on the beaches of Santa Monica. (laughs) Redfords are a dime a dozen in L.A. (laughs) Um, These are just such wonderful uh, observations. And then there's, I mean, I like the way also uh, she is, unlike Didion as well, she's always a participant in the action as well. There's none of that thing of being a disinterested observer. Mm. And then there's this kind of really just incredibly... I mean, she's always... When she is being a participant, she's just saying these consistently brilliant things so that, uh, you know, she goes to see The Godfather Part Two, And, of course, <coughs> Coppola wants to know about it. Uh, and she says, You know, Francis... Your movie really is a masterpiece. You know how I can tell? How he says. She replies, "It's flawed." <laughs> <laughs> Which really flawed me, actually, after uh, that exchange.
2: Right, because she also she talks to these people, you know, at the height of their fame yeah, and their power, yeah. and she's the person who is willing to say, "Hey, you know, I know you're, <laughs> I know you're a little bit full of shit still <laughs> in that, you know."
3: I mean, this is something that else that you can maybe. Uh, you're in a much better position than me to answer Molly, but I mean, I love that off-the-cuff quality, the casualness of it. But as we all know now, you know, uh, Kerouac kept revising on the road to make it more spontaneous. And I wonder about the extent to which this uh, very easygoing, light, casual quality was uh, was the product of a lot of rewriting on her part.
2: Well, I think it was also the product of a, a conscious construction on her part, which uh, she talks about in the title essay in this book, and I Used to Be Charming, um, which is about her accident. And um, that essay I also was really floored by because in that she sort of deconstructs the Eve Babbitt's persona and says, here I am undergoing this incredibly physically painful thing and I like refuse to stop making jokes about it because that's my way of dealing with it and of making it, you know, something she can process, um, and then she sort of goes into it. She goes like, "Am I just doing this because I don't want to face anything serious in my life?" She really, she lets herself have it the way she lets everybody else have it, um, and and it's still she comes out so funny at the end. Still, you know, that's what I also love is that she's not judgmental of anybody ever. You know, she she portrays people as they are, but she never passes judgment on how people live their lives. And it's like getting to a place where she can not pass judgment on herself um, in that essay, I thought was so, that, so that's powerful. Why I, that's why I
1: like her work.
2: Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, maybe we can take some questions from the audience now. Does anybody have any questions? Or any comments? <laughs>
3: Uh, well, uh, would it have been this one? Yes.
2: It's
3: a yeah, so it's Slow Days, Fast Company, which, uh, um, given that Eve's Hollywood is so much bigger, and I think it's packaged as a, no- offered as a novel, isn't mm. it? I think it is. Yeah, and with, so I thought, I assume this was the kind of, uh, you know, this was the, um, the one that she wrote in order to build up the stamina for, uh, for, 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 for writing the bigger book, Eve's Hollywood. But no, it's the other way around. Uh, this skimpier-looking uh, book, uh, for me, is a much finer uh, uh, work, you know, w- work in in many ways. So yeah, slow days, fast company. But the one we're really pimping tonight is this one. <laughs> and I guess it's worth saying as well that the, because of this sort of easygoing relationship she has about form, the traffic between uh, stuff that she's just do that she's doing for magazines in this book and the stuff that you get in, in here, which is her own book. I mean, there's a, there's a the, the, the traffic is continuous, and there's a couple of pieces in this book uh, about dancing, and they get transmuted into, you know, they're, tonally they're very similar to stories addressing the same subject matter in, uh, in Black Swans. I think that's... Mm. Right to
2: say. Yeah, I mean, also her novels, she has a few books of fiction, which can also sort of function. I think they're all a little bit Romana, clef y There's mm. people in it that you can maybe recognize as real-life figures, but they're sort of fi- more fictionalized enough for it to be considered fiction. But, uh, yeah, again, I just feel like she really fits in with all these Ferris Gallery mm. artists in, that, in the, you know, that she's just making completely new things that have nothing to do with sort of the old ways, because there's not that pressure to be part of a, you know, a tradition.
1: First Gallery, I think, must, must have been very, very difficult for a certain type of a woman to be involved in.
2: For because sure. It was a
1: very much of a male orientated. Well, she was clearly
2: group. present in all these boys' clubs, mm-hmm. um, but she also is friends with lots of women, which is the other thing, mm-hmm. you know, and I found out that she and Anne Rice were friends. That was very, it's <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> like, oh right, because they're both just like female weirdos mm-hmm. with their creating your own world, and I think it is Sort of lonelier to be a woman who does things like that yeah. who to, to, you know and that to me is yeah. what I found so inspiring about her is this is somebody who really just dedicated herself to her craft, who had a mission that she had to make these things and did it um, but you know all these all these artists that were male you know had wives, I think to sort of mm-hmm. deal with a lot of the administrative part and and you know if they wanted to have a family to to raise kids for them and I think for Eve to sort of choose this path of being an artist is much harder for a woman to go to choose that and that's you know what makes it so so great mm.
3: yeah but I think it's really it's it, your question about which book I was hand, uh, holding up I think it's really interesting this moment I mean to make a more general point you know uh, now uh, you you know you publish a book and you uh, you've either got, say, two or three weeks that determine the success or failure of that book. And quite often, to a great extent, actually the success or failure of the book is pretty well determined by the time it's published. That's depressing, of course. (laughs) Um, uh, But I think one of the wonderful things about the NYRB thing is that they're reissuing these books, which have often been uh, um, forgotten. And what they're doing, they've redefined the idea of the classic, i.e. quite often they're republishing, republished, reissuing forgotten books as classics, which, and cl- by classics, they mean actually a book that sank without trace the moment it was published. And I think, I mean, so there's all, so they've had, there have been some very successful uh, rehabilitations, if you like. I guess the, one of the biggest ones would be Stoner by, by John Williams. And I think it's going to be really interesting now that I think I'm, I'm right in saying that You know, this is uh, the—it's all in print now. Eve Babbitt. So there's that body of work, and I reckon it'll be interesting to see if uh, her status as a writer—that's the crucial um, uh, thing—can you know will be properly will be properly achieved now, and if she'll be discussed seriously. And I think, as part of that as well, you've got to concede that not all the books are of equal value. I mean, *La Woman* seems to me an incredibly weak book. I hope I'm not. anyone else. I I that know. was my favorite book. <laughs> oh, <okay. laughs>
2: well, I like, I like all the them all. Out, I think so they're right. interesting, too, you know, because, again, like you were saying, it's like, well, it's flawed. It's not perfect, mm-hmm. you know? If it were, nobody's got a perfect, you know, you have to try things. And, again, I think that is a thing LA gives you a lot of space to sort of try things out, just in terms of, you know, there's, feels like there's physical space Uh but also just mental space to sort of go in directions that maybe other people, you know, you're not working off a blueprint of somebody else. um, Miranda, um is Eve's sister. She's in the front row tonight. Oh, We're right. very happy to have her here. Mm. Um, would you like to have a mic? Yeah, sure. Thank you so much.
0: Uh, actually, I just wanted to answer a couple of your questions because oh, yeah. I'm Eve's sister, uh, Mirandi. and uh, one of the questions I thought I she really did sink entirely from sight for quite a long time, and uh, it was which you know she took it took that you know and she's been very reclusive, and uh, but you know it was Lily Lily Analik's interest. Which uh, you know, I kind of worked alongside Lily for about three years, you know, just to get the Vanity Fair piece out, mm-hmm. you know, which then led to, you know, everything really, pretty much, you know, working with Erica again and and redoing the you know Eve's books. She also, uh, I just wanted to tell you. She totally rewrote everything constantly. Oh, <laughs> <yeah>. <laughs> it was an arduous, <laughs> you know, process to get to that lightness. you mm. know, uh, and uh, and so I think she was pretty serious as a writer always. And uh, anyway, so that's what I
3: wanted. Can I to ask see. a follow-up question? Sure. I mean, all all writers feel hard done by. Um, you know, they all feel they haven't got the recognition they deserve. But I wonder, was there, I mean, the fact that she hasn't written much in the last, however many years, did she feel that she hadn't had the uh, 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 recognition as a writer that she deserved? And did, and did that play a part in her sort of not?: not <laughs> Well, not, writing you know, not
0: more? really. I think what happened was uh, she kept on writing really up until the uh, accident. And which was in 1997. And uh, it was so major, you know, and her, her herself afterwards was so completely different, you know, that she just, she tried, you know, the, the piece that is in this book, I Used to Be Charming, you know, was, was, you know, really, really hard work for about two years to even, you know, pull that out of her. And it was kind of a mess. And, you know, she just said, that's it. I'm not going to, I can't do this, so I don't want to, not do it, you know, I don't want to be bad at it. So she just withdrew and, you know, became really very reclusive and kind of just got rid of everybody she could get rid of, you know, which did not include me, but I'm <laughs> 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 only because I'm family, you know, but it was, a, you know, it was, a, she, she just, I don't think she could write anymore, you know, or she would have, you know, because it was always her heart, you know, to write. And,
2: uh, so anyway. um, yeah, I want to say I think I Used to Be Charming is, you know, one of her greatest works, absolutely. Um, um, and yeah, so all the editing and work that went into it, you know, yeah, thank I you know, so Sarah, much. thank you, thank
0: you, Sarah. <laughs> <laughs> you know.
2: Yeah, and thanks to Sarah Kramer of the New York Review of Books, who is not here tonight because she's in New York, but set this all up. Um,
0: and she asked us... Said many kind things. Yeah. to all of you for being here, and she said actually that this was the panel that she would most like to sit with. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> but she'd almost fly out here just to do it.
3: <laughs> well, now that we have you here, maybe you could convey a, a personal request to Eve from me. That uh, you know, if she could sure. be persuaded <laughs> to write something else. I mean, I've always hoped that she would write something about Art Pepper. <laughs> wow, <laughs> that's not well, an unreasonable uh, <laughs> request, is it? <laughs>
0: well, that that job belongs to our cousin Laurie
3: Pepper. Well, indeed, yeah. I, I mean, you know, uh, I know that Laurie has done that. But yeah. you know, I'm always interested to get Eve's take on, on anybody. Our, wow, but, uh, you know,
0: she just, she just, it just doesn't flow anymore. She can't make it hmm. happen. So I think she's written all we're going to get out of her. So
2: I've, yeah, I've seen <laughs> she's made some sort of self-deprecating comments about like, oh well, you know. What good is all the attention now? <laughs>
0: yes, she just yeah. She said yeah. She said publicity is really wonderful, except when you're in your seventies.
2: <laughs> <laughs> but again, that was such a funny thing to it's say. Funny, you know? she's still
0: funny. Yeah, yeah she still mm-hmm. totally
2: got that. You know. Um, well, thank you so much, everybody. Anyone else have any I questions you, or anything? Anne,
0: we've we've met on a couple of panels, right? I think I saw you with Lily and.
2: <laughs> um chit-chat, sorry. Um well thank you so much. Yeah, I mean I think I think in LA there is a tendency of people to try and sort of, you know, pave over history all the time and you have to sort of make these connections yourself. And you know, she says that thing about you have to know somebody to show you around, and she's really the best person you could Absolutely. have to show you around LA. And I feel like so many of the things that she says about LA in the 70s, I just feel like, are, are still true today.
1: I think, I think, as I mentioned, I think she's very, very accurate. Yeah,
2: in description. Um, so yeah, we are all, we're all very proud to be, to be here and to be affiliated with this because she is, she's the best representative for, for LA writers we could possibly have. Um, you know, and I hope other female writers will come into print again that, uh, that we might also not know about. You know, <laughs> reissue more people <laughs> that are cool. Um, Well, cool. Thank you so much, everybody, for coming out. And thanks to Skylight for hosting. You've been listening to the Skylight Books author reading series. Don't forget, you can listen to this and all of our other great podcasts at skylightbooks.com. Thanks again for stopping by, and we hope to see you soon.